Well, great, big, beautiful good morning to you. It's so good to be together. Would you welcome Blend, Amp, Roan County, and Bearden? We see you. We're glad to be together today. Hey, um, I'm Mark. If I haven't met you yet, I'd like to introduce myself. Glad you're here. I'm thrilled to be uh, in the house of God today at, at church today. I hope you are too. Um, hey, I want to tell you something about myself. Um, six years ago, uh, our life changed. Our, our family dynamic changed. A couple of boys started entering into our world. And so we've had two girls our whole life and... You know, and all of a sudden, these two guys have stepped into our world, stepped into our existence, and it's been a little difficult. Ah, it's too strong. It's been a little odd at times. Like, they, they, they came in pretty comfortable almost from the get-go. Took my seat on the couch, <laughs> opened the fridge, just kind of made themselves at home. We said, make yourself at home. I didn't really mean it, I don't think, but <laughs> they made themselves at home. And, and part of making themselves at home, and I'm kind of old school, so I'll just tell you this, it still kind of makes me feel a little awkward that they call me Mark. It feels a little too familiar. You know what I'm saying? Just a little too familiar. And sometimes I think we do the same thing in our relationship with God. We, we, we know who he is, and we get a little too familiar sometimes. Hey, we've been in a study called Out of the Chaos. And if you've been with us for a little bit, the last few weeks, we've, we've looked at the scriptures, and we've looked at what we can learn from God. And when we, we look at the scriptures, we're in Genesis chapters 1 through 11 right now. And this weekend, we'll be in 10 and 11. So if you want to grab your... Genesis journal, your Bible, your smartphone, and follow along. We'd love for you to do that and follow along. But as we've looked at the scriptures, we look at the scriptures through the grid of the New Testament. We look at the scriptures through the person in the, the life of Christ. Like we have an amazing privilege as we look back at the Old Testament to see it through a, a whole different lens and a whole clarifying lens through Christ. And as we've looked at the story of God, which is from Genesis to Revelation, it's called the redemption story of God, we, we've been asking this question, and we should always ask this question, as, as students of the Bible, as followers of Christ, when we come into the Word, we should always be asking this question as we spend time in the Word, what does this say about God? What does this reveal about the main character of the story? What does this tell us about God? And so, so far in this series, this little mini-series we're in, we've discovered a few things about God. Week one, we discovered that God is far better than I think he is. God is far better than I think he is. In fact, even his judgment is far better than I think it is. Week number two, we discovered God's judgment creates opportunities for new beginnings. God's judgment creates opportunities for, for new beginnings. And last week, we looked at and discovered that God is fully committed to the world he created. God is fully committed to this world that he's created, which means he's fully committed to you and to me. And as we finish up these introductory remarks, Genesis 1 through 11 are, are an introduction to the entire book, not only the entire book of Genesis, but the entire book of the Bible. He's setting a stage here and a tone here. And as we spend time wrapping up this introduction to this entire book, here's what I believe we discover and understand from Genesis chapters 10 and 11. God is far more other than I think he is. God is far more other than I think he is. And the word that sums this up is never mentioned in the text. The word that sums this up is holy. And the word for holy, what, what does holy mean? Holy simply means a separation from the ordinary. God is far more holy, far more other than I think he is. And of course he is. Who created everything that we exist in? Who created the world that we live in? Who created all things? God did. God is far more other than any one of us and any one of us have ever seen or experienced on the face of this earth. So God is set apart. He's above all and beyond it all. For it's God who created everything. And this otherness, this otherness about God, 
is seen actually in, in an odd space. It's seen in the genealogies. If you've been following along in our text, in chapter 9, he refers, he starts to talk about these genealogies, these, these lists of, of people. This, this person beget this person beget this person beget this person. And in chapters 10, the whole chapter 10 is filled with genealogies. And he goes on from chapter 10 to 11. It even includes another genealogy in chapter 11. And so what, what we see in God actually orchestrating and writing out these genealogies is that God creates history. It didn't just happen or unfold. God actually created history. When we think of history, we often think of, we often think of, there's goes Peter Brady again. Did you hear that? We often think of, when we think of history, we often think of the past. Do we not? How many of you are history majors? And yes, we can see you online. How many, how many are history majors? Studied history? History, people that study history look back at the past. They look back at the past to understand the present so we can understand what's taken place. But for God, the past, the present, and the future are not something he has to look back at. It's something he's created from the foundation of the world. In Revelation, we're told, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The whole plan has been un understood. The whole plan has been in play and in context from the beginning. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. There is no real history with God in in. in other ways, another way of looking at it, God's unfolding the history that he's already written. He's already created. We're called to his history. So this story is not just what happened and an unfolding and a retelling of what's happened. This story, the story of, of redemption from Genesis to Revelation is, is a story that's being exacted by God and unfolded by him. You know, we use companies like Ancestry.com. I don't know how many of you would admit to doing that or some of us are just fascinated with ourselves. We want to know more about who our people were, where we came from. And I have a brother who's done a ton of research on this. And I don't know, for you, maybe it's been a positive experience. You found out you're related to some king or queen or nobility or somebody who did something great. I got horse thieves and swindlers in my past. <laughs> I canceled my subscription almost immediately. I don't need any more of that. I got enough issues right here today. I don't need to know who my people were. And yet, here, here's the reality. God lists these ancestries, these, these histories of people that have, that have taken place and have had their space on the earth. And if, if you look at this, the author here in Genesis is looking back to and connecting the history of man all the way back to the person of Adam and Eve to, to the, the present day. And, and if you follow it far enough along and get deep into the histories, it leads all the way up to the person of Christ, from Adam to Abraham, all the way down to the lineage and into the person of Christ. Genesis 10 picks up after the flood. And with a marker for a new section of the history, in chapter 10, verse 1, it says this. We're going to read just one verse from the whole chapter 10. So the rest of it's on you sometime to look at this week because it lists out a whole bunch of genealogies. But here's what he says. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now, the rest of the entire chapter unpacks each of these Three guys' genealogies. And here's what, here's what we understand from this passage. These guys, fresh off the boat, got off the boat, they had children, and their children had children, and their children had children. And he wants us to be very sure and clear that we know that, that they started to multiply and to fill the earth. And, and so here in they're filling the earth, the genealogies are listed. You might go, well, how come some are given more attention than others? And, and it's confusing sometimes if you read Chapters 9, 10, and 11, the three boys are put in different order often. Like, it's hard to figure out who's the firstborn, who's the secondborn. We know from Genesis 9 that Ham's the, the last, he's the thirdborn. But it's hard to figure out, like, like who is, who's the firstborn here? And, and the whole point of the author isn't trying to give you an exact, detailed um, 
recounting of every person that existed on the face of the earth. The, the, the writing style of the author here is to, is to point to and, to and to elevate significance. He's trying to elevate his significance. And so Shem, probably the third, I mean, probably the middle guy, probably the middle child. They always get left out. Here's pretty significant. The middle child here seems to be the guy who actually is tied to Terah, who's the father of Abram, who becomes Abraham, and again, leads to the entire genealogy that, that reaches all the way into the New Testament. And within this introduction of the story, God is no doubt far more other than I think he is. He's no doubt far more other than I think he is because he's the alpha and the omega. He's actually written the story and now he's unfolding it for us. And, and I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you because you're a lot like me. Sometimes when life gets complicated and it gets scary, I want to know someone's got the future. I need to be reminded that this isn't all out of control. This isn't all just going to hell in a handbasket. Somebody's got my future, our future in his hands. And so, so in these genealogies, what, what, what is a beautiful picture of this is, is it points to the past, the present, and the future. And this Alpha and Omega has our world, our life in his hands. I don't know if you've sent this verse to someone or maybe received it from somebody else, but it brings a lot of encouragement when life seems to be unraveling. I want to know, hey, hey tell me there's, there's a foundational point here to all this. Jeremiah 29, 11, a lot of our favorite verse, a lot of us would claim this as our favorite verse, where God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, but to give you hope and a future. And Jeremiah speaking here was talking about 70 years in captivity for the people of God. So in 70 years of agonizing and hoping and praying and longing for all that God had promised him, a hope and a future, he's hanging on there knowing that someone has the future in his hands. That's comforting to me. That should be comforting to us. This, this one who, is, who has created history holds history in his hands. Genesis is primarily a, a book of theology. It's a theology book. And one of the the clear pictures we get that we've already talked about, we'll talk about again and again, is that there's a clear indication, a clear picture here as you read the story, as you look at the story of the sovereignty of God. What does it mean to be sovereign? It means you're over in control of all things, that you hold the past, the present, and the future, and absolutely everything in between in your hands. God's not surprised by anything that's gonna happen today. Nothing. Today, tomorrow, or next week, he's not surprised by it, didn't catch him off guard, he didn't go, oh, I didn't see that coming. In God's sovereignty and in this mystery of God's sovereignty and our free will, how we jack things up and yet God still in his sovereignty gets his will accomplished and completes his perfect will in our lives is baffling and yet something I'm called to trust. Sovereignty, the will of God. Let me, let me get real practical for a moment or two. I have a friend of mine, his name's Walt, good friend of mine, and, and uh, when I think of Walt, there's a couple phrases that come to mind, and there's this one phrase Walt uses all the time, like there's not a conversation I've had with Walt where he didn't, he didn't use this phrase. I thought it was something like, you know you have a nervous tick, and people that talk go, um, 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 I, like, I just thought it was something he filled the space with, but, but here's the phrase that Walt uses all the time, incessantly so, he goes, Lord willing, Lord willing. I'll be meeting with Walt in the afternoon at three o'clock and I'll say, hey, let's break. We'll, we'll meet later for dinner. We'll grab our wives and have dinner uh, downtown or whatever. And Walt will say, we'll be there at six o'clock, Lord willing, Lord willing. And it used to bother me. Now I'm owning it. <laughs> Lord willing. And let me tell you why. Last October, my brother calls me on the phone and he says to me, hey, Mark, um, 
we're, we're cruise people. Terry and I are not cruise people, not cruise people. We'd rather sit on a beach for an entire week and not move. But he said, Mark, there's a great deal. There's a brand new ship on Celebrity. We want to take you guys. We want to spend some time doing, doing this cruise together in February. It's dark. It's bismal that time of year. Sign up and do this. I'm like, Terry, you don't want to go on a cruise, do you? I don't want to go on a cruise. And somehow we, in a weak moment, we said, we're going to go on a cruise. So November, December, January come. By January, I'm like, you know, this cruise thing's a pretty good idea. It was raining a whole lot, and life was full and complicated. I thought, this might actually be something we would enjoy. So I let myself get excited about this cruise. And then the week of the cruise came up, and if you've traveled recently, you know, you can't go anywhere without a COVID test, right? So we show up at Walgreens, and I think, you know, I've got no symptoms, but a lot of people have, have had no symptoms and told, hey, you're, you're positive. What? What? So I thought, there's only, there's only a slight chance still that we're going to make this cruise. There's a lot of stuff going on in our world. So Thursday night, we, we roll in. You know how it is the week before you go on a trip? You're just trying to get everything done so you can be away for a week. And so we get to Walgreens, and we take our test, and the, the place shut down, and they couldn't figure out how to get the, the results out. And so we went to dinner later. And so it was like 8, eight o'clock at night. We finally got a result going, hey, you're negative. You can, you can do the cruise. So I thought, all right, we're going we're gonna to do this thing. I didn't even get the luggage out yet. So Friday comes around. We're supposed to fly out Saturday morning. Friday comes around, we, we pack it up. We, we pack the cruise. I got suntan lotion, the whole bit. We're gonna do this thing. We're gonna have a great time. This is gonna be more fun than I think it is. So we climb into bed Friday night. It's about 8.45 at night, and I get a text. My text says, hey, your flight's been canceled. Didn't say hey, just said your flight's been canceled. <laughs> I added the hey part. My flight's been canceled. How can that be? We gotta, we gotta make a, a port by a certain time. So... Just like you do, you get online and there's nothing online. So I get on the phone, no lie, I'm on the phone for five, five and a half hours and over and over, every like, I don't know how, every 45 seconds it felt like, hey, we're still concern, concerned about your call. Please hold, they're not concerned about my call. They're not, and I'm, I wanna hang up and I'm afraid if I hang up, I'll be like 183rd in line if I hang up. So five, five and a half hours later, I finally talk to a person. I can't even believe it, I'm beside myself. We're up all night at this point. And she says, look, there's nothing left, but I, I just found the flight for you to get you to another city in Florida. You can get an Uber from, from there to the port, and you can still make it. All right, well, book us. When does it leave? And it leaves in about two hours. So Terry and I quickly got in the shower, headed to the airport. It's 5.30 in the morning. We're getting ready to book our, uh, board our flight. We're looking up there, and we're in line. We're, we're doing this thing. We're like, we're not, you know, section A or whatever, but section C, they call our section, or section three finally. And so we're, we're moving toward lining up for this for this flight, and the woman comes on the phone, on, on the overcom, and she said, this isn't even professional. She says, I know y'all aren't going to believe this, and she did say y'all. I know y'all aren't going to believe this, but this flight just got canceled. So we all lined up again. Surely there's another way this is going to happen. This is, just, this is just the drama of it all. Nothing else available. Terry and I drove home in the dark, climbed into bed, and tried to sleep off our first world problem. <laughs> Lord willing, has taken a brand new understanding and meaning in our lives. And yet, I think it's probably where we ought to be living more and more often. I don't, I don't control anything. I think I do. I try to pretend I do. I, I, I live in an illusion sometimes. I have some control over the world and this universe in which I live in. And yet, oftentimes where I find myself is in the throes of what really, really is going on in the world. And so... This passage came to mind uh, as I woke up and got my bearings that day. James chapter 4, verse 13 and 15. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Turns out, Walt Wright, Lord willing, we're going to do this or that. Lord willing. And, and, and to say Lord willing is, 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 an, is, a, is a declaration of there's someone else that's in more control than I am. Lord willing, I'm going to do this thing. Lord willing, if God allows, we're going to do this thing. Lord willing, this will take place. There's a dependency on the otherness of God, the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God that has much more in control of our lives than a daggum cruise on a ship I didn't want to be on in the first place. Lord willing. And yet, we find ourselves oftentimes trying to, trying to make God fit what we want him to do. When we pray about things, I prayed that we'd make the ship. It didn't work out that way. We, pray, we, we often pray about the things we want God to do for us. And that's not completely wrong. But, but what gets off about this is, is when we pray that, when we pray that, that God would, would honor our will, we kind of reverse order this thing. We kind of put this in a reverse order rather than submitting ourselves to who he is and who he longs for us to be. And there's a reality within us that dates all the way back to the beginning of the story. Humans want to bring God down to our level. We, we want to bring God down to our level in a way that we can wrap our minds and our hearts around him, in a way we can live a life with him and around him and for him. So we, we often seek to bring God down to our level. We were created in the image of God, and yet we spent a lot of time trying to get God to actually construct himself to form into our image. And you've heard this phrase before, and, and hopefully you've not used this phrase, but there's people who say, you know, we, we take a construct that we have, and, and, and we take it to be truth, and then we fit God into it. Here's what's common these days. I've had a couple conversations with people over the last six months. Well, God is love. Would you agree? God is love. So then they would move from God is love to say, if God is love, then whatever two consenting adults decide to do and call it love, then that's godly. You see the damage in the construct there? It leads to us determining and, de and defending and defining what we believe is right or wrong, what we believe is godly, what we, what we believe and how we see love, rather than aligning ourselves under the construct of what God says about love. Here's another one. I get this a lot. Um, and I hear it a lot. And I probably thought this in my own heart and mind at times. Like, God wants me to be happy. Doesn't he? Doesn't God want you to be happy? God wants me to be happy. Like, there's a whole argument I could make about that. But, you know, truth is, God does want you to be happy. God wants us to be joyous people. He wants us to be overjoyed, overwhelmed with happiness. And yet, the things that we say, God wants me to be happy, we use oftentimes to defend something in our life that we've either done or have or involved ourselves in because we want to feel good about who we are. We, we take our construct and try to add God and bring God down to our level. God wants me to be happy. So it's okay if I step out of my marriage. It's okay if I purchase this thing. It's okay if I get involved with this thing that I love and I care about because God wants me to be happy. You, you see how the construct is in reverse? We, we've got it in reverse order. We've looked at this all together upside down. And folks say this. This is real popular. I heard this on the news the other morning. Like somebody was being applauded, and it's, it's over and over. This is, this is the new catchphrase. Man, I got to live my truth. And then they applaud them. Wow, good for you. You're living your truth. Wow, you're courageous. Really? I got to live my truth? So whatever my truth is, you have to get in alignment with? You have to, you have to show up and not only be a part of it, but applaud it? I got to live my truth. 
And for us as believers, for us as followers of Christ, we don't get to live our truth. We don't get to define what love is. We don't get to define what joy is because he's already done it. The Alpha and Omega has already said, here is love, here is joy, and here is truth. Now bring yourselves up under it. That's what God's calling us to. That's what a holy God calls us to. And before you feel too discouraged about this, we come by it honestly. Again, this is introductory to the entire book of the Bible, which it's saying a whole lot about God, and it says a whole lot about the people of God. And this story that's probably familiar to a lot of you who've been around church for a little bit is the story of the Tower of Babel. We're going to unpack it for a few minutes this morning. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, um, the author here deals with an occurrence that takes place that points to this very reality that we seek to bring God down to our level. Let me read it to you. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so, they, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed, from them, dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the entire earth. Remember, this, this chapter 11 is the end of the introductory of the entire Bible, and so it tells us a lot about God, and it tells us a lot about God and his response to man. And you know, I've grown in my understanding of this text. I, I, I've I've developed a little bit in understanding. I used to think that, that it was written in such a way that, that these folks built a tower to reach God. And, and I think I get a, I'm getting a better grasp of this thing. And I've, I've leveled in on the, the key verse here, which is verse four, and it points out two, two realities of man. In verse four it says, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the entire earth. You see, they have a desire to hunker down. Remember, they've been scattered a bit. They have a desire to hunker down and be together. So is that disobedient? Yeah, because God told them to multiply and to fill the earth. And then they have this pride issue. They say they want to make a name for themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. And so when I've taught this before, I've really hunkered down and preached on the pride issue of man and the disobedience of man. And I, I think those are in the text. I think those are accurate. I think those are appropriate to deal with. And yet, on a side note, let me just say, is it so wrong to want to make a name for yourself? Is that the issue? Is it so wrong for us to, to want to make a name for ourselves? In fact, if you read a little bit ahead, you know, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. In fact, we, we still, most of us, can recognize and know the name Abraham. It, it has some significance. He made a name for himself. However, what's, what's wrong with wanting to make a name for yourself? Let me get personal for half a second. I get up every day, and I don't think I say this to myself or out loud, but I want to make a name for myself. I want to do great things. I want to do great things. I want, I want to be a great husband. I want to be a great father. I want to be a great friend. I want to be a great leader. I want, I want to be the things that God's called me to do. I was actually wired in his image to be creative. I, I, want, to, I want to make an impact in the world I live in. Is that so wrong? Is it so wrong? 
And I know what you're going to say. If you're coaching me and counseling back, you're probably going to say, well, that's not wrong, but it's the motivation behind that. Yeah, I get that. And I think that's true. I'm not making any less of man's pride or disobedience. I think they're in the text, but I think there's far more here to grab. There's far more here to see in God's response to the project of building a city with, their top, with its top in the heavens. And let me, let me take one more side note before we get to it. If you're not careful, when you read the first 11 chapters of, of, of the book of, of Genesis, you can come to the conclusion, if you're trying to understand who God is, God is wrapped way too tight. He's wrapped way too tight. Seriously, do you have to get it exactly right? Is that the deal? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, beautiful garden, buck naked and none of shame. They were just enjoying life. They were having a great time. God says, all this is yours, but not this one tree. And so what did they do? They went to the one tree and they picked a piece of fruit. Seriously, is that so wrong? Apparently so, because all hell broke loose, right? It really did. God ushered them out of the garden, put some clothes on them, really, put guards in front of the, the gate and said, now you need to wander. So apparently, that was a little, that was a little too far. And then, even though the, the scriptures tell us, and we've read this in the last few weeks, that we've been evil since youth. We, we're, we're wired that way. We were born in sin. Every one of us has a, a bent toward evil. That's who we are as humanity. God knew that. And yet, God got to a place with humanity and said, I'm fed up again. He's done. So what did he do? He gathered a group of people, a family, put them on a boat, and then he annihilated all the rest of us. He, not, he took everybody else out. Do you have to get it just exactly right? And then here in the text, these folks were scattered. And they, they, they sought strength in numbers, perhaps. They wanted to be together. Like, let's, let's come together. Let's do something. Let's, let's actually build a tower and a city. Let, let's build a city with a tower reaching up into the heavens. And yet, as they do this, as they create this space and this place, God says in response, and hear this, this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. If you're not careful, you think it's about what they're doing. God's after so much more. It seems like God must be threatened by man. With Adam and Eve, he says, hey, now they're gonna understand the knowledge of good and evil. And with these folks, he says to them, hey, nothing's gonna be out of their reach now. Nothing's gonna be too impossible for them. Was God too concerned? Was he threatened that people were getting too close to the heavenly realms, that they were gonna understand all the mysteries of the universe? Absolutely not. The offense is revealed in the project itself. The building of a tower with its top in the heavens was not to reach God, but rather to bring God down. Get this, hear it again. The building of the tower with its top in the heavens was not to reach God, but rather to bring God down. They were trying to bring God down, just like we do sometimes, to bring God down into our construct. And, and what's interesting, if you, if you look back in history a little bit, like every city and town known to man at this time, most of them had cities and towers. In fact, they were pagan. There were pagan gods that were known all over the world at that time. And so they would build a, a city and a tower built to any pagan they could possibly come up with, the, the pagan and, and the god of the sun, the moon, the earth, the birds. They, they had all kinds of, of, of towers built to these pagan gods. And, and when you think of a tower, here's, here's what I need to get a perspective of. It's not like a tower like the Eiffel Tower. You know, it goes kind of straight up, straight up. This tower looked a lot more like a pyramid. In fact, it, it looked exactly like a pyramid, but unlike a pyramid, here's a picture of it. Unlike a pyramid, um, 
It was not um, empty inside and cavernous so that you could put bodies or jewels or whatever. It was filled with back dirt. And these pyramids, these towers were called zagarets. And and these zagarets were like 60 to 200 feet tall. And it wasn't about reaching the heavens. It was about bringing the heavens down. There was a room at the top of these pyramids. There was a room at the top of these zagarets that had a space where a table was and and, and a a cot so that the gods could make their way down to earth. And and the stairs on the outside were visible. They they led from top down. It was an effort and an opportunity for them to actually appease their gods and to bring their gods down to their level. They were were de-deifying their gods by bringing them down to a human level. And so when God comes down and he sees this city, he sees this tower. Do do you catch the offense? The building of this tower assumes that that we need, that God needs our help, that God needs us to help him get down to reality, that God needs us to to, to actually provide a way for him, to build a tower and a staircase for him to get down to us so he can be the God that we need him to be. It's still constructing a theology and an image of God that has everything to do with what we think other than what he says is true about himself. Now, I'm not convinced any of you have got a zagaret in your backyard. I've driven through many of your neighborhoods, can't see it from the road. Can't believe any of you have built like a tower in your backyard so that God can make access to your world. And I know this to be true. We've all built, in some way, shape, or form, these, these towers, these zagarets that, that invite God to come down and be what we want him to be, to be what we need him to be. I'll speak for myself. There's things that <clears throat> I wrestle with. There's things I pray over. Uh, and most days, most weeks, months, I'm in a good space with it. I think I've got a right priority. But there's a lot of times in my life when I'm praying for things and I, I'm just stuck. I'm just wondering, what do, I gotta get, what do I gotta do, God, to get you to respond? What do I gotta get you to do to, to have some movement in this area? I got a daughter who's got health issues. I got a dad, 98 years old, doing great physically, but lately they've locked him down in COVID again. He's stuck in his apartment. They're just putting food in breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so if, if 98 doesn't kill you, isolation sure will. I got unresolved relationships in my life. I got issues inside of this you don't wanna know about. I've told you before, my issues have issues. I'm not where I was 20, 30, 40 years ago, but I still got a long ways to go. And sometimes when I'm praying, I'm asking God, what, what do I gotta get you to do to come down and fix all this? And I would never say this to God, though I fought it. God, I've done something for you. I actually read the Bible. I pray. I really try to follow you. I love your church. I actually give to your church. I try to be a good father, a good husband, a good friend. What do I gotta get you to do to actually respond to these things that I long for you to do in my life? And I hope you hear the offense of the question. The question actually reveals the heart. I'm actually saying to God, what what do I gotta get you to do to come down and be God for me? Rather than what do I gotta do to surrender myself to a God who loves me, to the Alpha and the Omega, to the other God, the holy God who has all things together and you're calling me to trust and follow and find myself under your construct, not inviting you to honor and follow mine. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. That's both maybe disappointing for you today and maybe a relief. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need me to figure out how to help him get into the real world. God doesn't need you to make it possible for him to be God. In fact, God doesn't need you. 
He doesn't need you. He wants you. He loves you. He's done everything from Genesis to Revelation, the pursuit of redemption is, is that God would rescue, save us, and bring us back in, or into relationship with him. But he doesn't need you to do it. I was sitting last month in Psalm 50, and it was just a great reminder. Same, same principle, same truth. Let me read it to you. Psalm 50, and uh, I think it's verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are all mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and, I, and you shall glorify me. You know, we, we, we often think about, like, my, my service, my, my, the things I bring to God are, are going to actually maybe entice him, obligate him to respond to me in such a way. And God goes, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't need you to feed me. He's saying to these folks, you're bringing sacrifices. I know we love to quote this, this passage, like, my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He actually does. And so when we bring them as a sacrifice to him, he goes, well, thanks. That's mine. What he's longing for for us, and he says to them, I want you to offer a sacrifice of praise. I want you to do what I've called you to do, to, to honor and live under a holy God. Th that's the call. That's the construct that he, he lays out for us. For God does not need us to feed him. Our faithfulness, our generosity, our reading our Bible, our praying, all those things that we do, good for us, we should be doing those things in response to God. Nothing we do obligates God to be God. That's reverse. That's reverse. We get in this reverse thinking. Our faithfulness, our obedience comes out of a reality that God has done an amazing work for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. God needs to be seen in his rightful place, other, holy. That's what he's calling us to. And before we leave the story, let me just say this. God clarifies who he is. He clarifies who he is. He does come down, but he doesn't come down through a tower. He actually steps into the universe in which he's created. And when he steps down into the universe in which he's created, he sees what man has done, and he says, you've been disobedient. You've actually been prideful. You have done these things, and, and you sought to bring me down, so I'm coming down. And as I come down, I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with the world that you've created, the construct you've created. So what does he do? He jacks up the construct. He jacks it up, and what he says to them is, I'm gonna take away your speech. Anybody try to do a project with somebody who speaks a different language? It's a difficult deal to do. God says, I'm gonna step in, I'm gonna be God, because I'm over all things, I'm even over the words that you speak. And it's miraculous if you think about it. These people, just moments before, could understand each other. They could look each other in the eye and have a conversation and knew exactly what the other person was saying. And within seconds, God says, I'm confusing your speech. And now they couldn't even grab words that they knew five minutes before. God steps in and does this miraculous thing and demonstrates to these people, you don't bring me down, I come down. And I'm, I'm calling you to live under my construct. God clarifies his otherness. He's the creator, the sustainer, has full ultimate control and authority over all that which he's created. And if you think about it, here's where languages began, I would imagine, right? Here's where people groups started to form and, and God dispersed them over the, the whole earth. And what I love about this is we can fast forward again. We look back at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, through what Christ has done, through what the Holy Spirit has done. And 
you know, a parallel verse, you can't read this without reading Acts chapter two, and we're told that as the Holy Spirit was promised, the Holy Spirit came as the church was being formed and as the message of the gospel needed to go forth, and the message of the, the good news of Jesus Christ needed to go forth. We read in Acts chapter two, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Folks who never, never spoke the language were speaking the good news of God in a language that they'd never known or experienced before. Just as God miraculously took away language, he miraculously brings it. And in verse 11, he says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The good news, God's clarifying who he is. One more side note. I have such admiration and respect for the men and women who've given their entire lives to translate the good news of who Jesus Christ is to unreached people groups. There's people all over the world still writing and translating the, 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 the good news of Christ into a language that people can understand and grasp. Still, every bit is miraculous in my mind. Still, every bit is amazing and wonderful as people understand who it is that's rescued and saved them and offers them redemption. God clarifies who he is. So then we need to be clear on who God is. What's the, what's the so what? We need to be clear on who God is. What does this book, this story, say about God? It says he's far more other than I think he is. He's far more other than I think he is. And, and here's where it gets complicated for us, because we use a lot of language. And I love this. I think it became more and more popular. Some of you aren't old enough to remember this, but in the 70s and the 80s, we moved more and more into a personal relationship with Jesus, where he's my friend. And so those songs that we sung, those hymns back in the day, what a friend we have in Jesus, all my sins and griefs to bear. Another one, he walks with me, he talks with me along life's narrow way. He, he's my friend. He is the friend of sinners. He absolutely is. And in this friendship with Christ, and, and oftentimes we all have done this, he is our friend. He sticks closer than a brother. He's met me at my deepest need. No one else has ever done that. No one else has actually seen everything about me, still accepts me and loves me and calls me to more. Jesus has done that. He's my friend. Yet he's no less holy. There's a popular T-shirt. I looked this up the other day because at first when I saw it, it seemed a little offensive. There's this T-shirt company, this ministry, and this organization that's kind of formed and and. You can look it up. It's called Jesus is my homeboy. You know, Jesus and me, we homeboys, you know? And I get the sentiment behind it, and the story's pretty, pretty impactful. He is my friend. He is my friend. He, he's met me in my greatest need. But folks, let me just say this again so you hear it. Jesus is never anything less than other. He's never anything less than Holy. And he's called us to live in his world, not to create a space where he enters ours. We're a part of his world. We're a part of his universe. We're a part of his story. We're a part of the work that he's called us to do. And so what's our response? Our response, every one of us ought to be this. Well, if that's true, and it is true, then we should find ourselves in surrender. Then I surrender to an other holy God. And for, for each and every one of us, that first happens when we give ourselves to Christ we surrender our life for his. We trade our life for his. We have to trade something out to get what we need. And that's what surrender is all about. And, and surrendering to Christ in a relationship with him is just the beginning. That's the starting line. That, that just begins the journey and the process. For each and every one of us, surrendering is something that takes place each and every day. I continue to surrender my thoughts, my will, my beliefs, my understanding, and, and submit them under the person and the, and the construct of Christ and Christ alone, who is wholly other who's the Alpha and the Omega. It's a call to surrender. And so this week, here, here's the challenge I wanna give you this week. 
as you pray, and I believe every one of you prays, every one of you prays, as you pray this week, whether it's, I don't know, in a chair by your fireplace or out on your back patio with a cup of coffee early in the morning or late at night on your pillow or behind the wheel of your car or, the wheel, or behind the, the, the push of a lawnmower, wherever it is you pray, I, I, I'm imploring you and asking you to do this this week. Ask God this one question. Ask God this question. God, where is it? Where is one of my beliefs out of alignment with you? Where are one of my beliefs out of alignment with you? I promise you there's more than one. We live in a world that's kind of jacking up the way we think and, and, and understand who God is. But, but, but we can only deal with one at a time. Where, where are one of my beliefs out of line with you? Where have I reversed the order? Where, where, where have I invited you to fit my construct rather than me aligning myself under yours? And I'd love for each and every one of us to make this commitment that we would choose to have right thinking about God We'd have right thinking about God, a right theology, an understanding of who God is, a commitment to who God is, and there's no other way to have a commitment to who God is, let me just say it, this shouldn't surprise any of you from Two Rivers Church, than the word of God. Folks, we, it's our mission statement. We seek to be word-dependent, spirit-empowered people. We gotta be word-dependent. To be word-dependent, you gotta be what? In the word. I don't know what the statistics are around the globe of Christians who are in the word, I don't even know what they are in our church, but here's what I long for them to be. Hope they are and hope to become more and more that we would be a people. We would be a people that can't get through a week without finding ourselves in the scriptures and asking over and over and over and over again, God, show me who you are and then help me to align my life under who you are. Folks, that's what it means to be word dependent. Spirit empowered, that gives the spirit some material to work with. That gives the Spirit the very words of Scripture to drive home into your heart, into my heart, as we seek to be a people of God, corporately and individually. And the last ask is this, and I, and I implore you to do this. Corporately, across all of our campuses, all of our venues, and every one of our lives, there's not one of us who couldn't read 11 chapters in the next seven days. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Pick up your Bible several times this week, you don't have to do it all in one sitting, but, but read the first 11 chapters, not, one, not verses 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11. You can do it. We can do this thing. And with a pad next to you, write down all the things that you discover about God, who God is. Just write those things down. I promise you, as you write those things down, the Holy Spirit's going to take those truths that you're writing down and, and, and bring them to memory, bring them to mind as you move in and out and through your work week and your construct continues to develop under alignment with who he is. That's who's got, who God's called us to be. I wanna say this, I know that you, you can't respond online or in another venue, but are we game for this? Yes, let me hear it loud. Let's read, let's read this week. Let me stand, let me ask you to stand, let me pray for us. God, the story that you've given us is an amazing gift. And I gotta say again today, I, I don't, I understand it, I, I know what it says, but I have a hard time wrapping my mind around a God who is so other, a God who is so holy, would want anything to do with the likes of us. And yet because of what you did, Jesus, on the cross, you've made us. You've made us acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And it's our desire, God, um, to live more and more in the otherness that you've called us to, in the otherness that you are, that we would resemble more and more um, who you are, and that our thinking and our beliefs and how we practice and live our lives would reflect more and more of the truth of who you are so the world would get a glimpse of who you are. It's in the precious and holy name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. let's worship.